Titus chapter 1 and verses 10 through 16. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Lord, we pray that you would bless our time together by filling us with your Holy Spirit so that we might have a thought that comes from you. That as we hear this text preached, that we would be thinking your thoughts after you, Lord. Lord, this text here in has a lot of negative things to say. Lord, we know that there are times in the church where some difficult things need to take place and help us think through the times and the seasons where those things are indeed true, Lord, and all for your glory, that your church might be holy and we might be a people who are more like you each and every day, Lord. In your name, amen. Amen. Well, it's one of the places where it begins right in the middle of a thought, so it behooves us to go back and to understand why he begins with the four there. I was at at another church this morning, and I taught in the adult Sunday school class from the prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, and Paul begins that prayer by saying, for this reason I bow my knee. And so I asked, it's a Sunday school class, not a sermon, so I expected a response. I said, what is the reason why he bowed his knee? And there's just dumbfounded silence. And so I started asking some probing questions of certain people. Why do you, what would make you pray a prayer like this? What would you, and still nobody really thought it that far through. So I'm like, well, let's go back and see what he said. And we saw that the gospel and the glories of the gospel 
that brought Jew and Gentile together and broke down that middle dividing wall between them was the motivation for Paul to pray the amazing prayer that he prays there in Ephesians chapter 3. Well, this is such a place where we need to look back and see why he's saying these things as well. For there are many who are insubordinate. Well, okay, that's the way to start a sentence. Why? What's the reason why this is so important? And because of verse 5, Paul tells Titus, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might, one, put what remained in order, and number two, appoint elders in every town as directed. So Titus's ministry there in Crete, we looked at it last week, but it helps to be reminded of it, is twofold. He is not just going and pastoring a church. Okay, that's not what Titus is doing. We have much pastoral instruction. I look to Timothy, I look to Titus regularly to learn for my own ministry here and how to pastor. But Titus's ministry is to first of all put what remained in order. Remember, Paul had gone through with Titus at some point through the island of Crete. We don't have that recorded for us. Must have happened sometime after Acts chapter 28. But apparently he went through Titus, pardon me, he went through Crete with Titus, and in going through there, planted churches there on that island. And then in planting those churches, Paul left and left Titus in place and then wrote to him these further instructions on what he should do there. And he first of all wants to say to put what remained in order. And that means to go back through the churches that they had been in and just reaffirm those doctrines that Paul had taught. And if there's any doubt about what those doctrines are, are you can look at an epistle like 1 Thessalonians. Paul was only in Thessalonica for a short period of time, somewhere between Three weeks and three months. We don't know exactly how long that period of time is, but a very brief period of time. And during that time, he established and planted a church there. But the church was weak, and Paul was very fraught with anxiety about that church. And when he left Thessalonica under the threat of persecution, he went to Berea, then to Athens, and then from Athens to Corinth. And when he finally got to Corinth, that's when he penned the letter of 1 Thessalonians back to them because he was very concerned about their spiritual well-being. And he heard back that they were doing good, but he had sent Timothy back not just to bring good news, but also to reaffirm and reteach those truths that he had taught. And there in the beginning of 1 Thessalonians, you see a lot of the things that Paul says he had taught and Timothy had reiterated. Romans is another good book that seems like what Paul would teach whenever he would establish a church. He had never been to the church at Rome when he wrote Romans. And so we have lined out for us the basic truths and tenets of the Christian faith. So just for example, with those two books together, if that's the knowledge that Titus had had when he was there in Crete, he had a lot of information, a lot of spiritual truths, a lot of scripture. He could go back to the churches that were planted there in Crete and encourage them with, especially when some of these scoundrels causing all the problems are Judaizers, right? 
These guys would creep in and they would bring in their junk saying, yeah, 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 it's all good. You have the gospel now. That's fine. But oh, you got to get circumcised. You have to follow the law. You have to partake of these dietary rules and regulations. Sure, Christianity is great. Jesus is amazing. Add a boy. But remember, he was Jewish. Don't you forget that. And if you want to become a true follower of Christ, you need to become Jewish as well. Ah, what a undermining way of penetrating the church in order to weep and sow destruction. Taking the good news of Christ's grace through faith alone and bringing in this heresy of you have to add to that works. So Titus is urged to go back and to put what remained to be put in order in order. So he goes back with these solid biblical truths. Notice he doesn't say a whole lot of works. He doesn't say put together social programs. Put together a works ministry. Put together, you know, a youth group. No, it's doctrinal error or doctrinal insufficiency that needs to be put in order so that the church stands strong. And secondly, to appoint elders in every town as directed to you. So when Paul and Timothy, pardon me, Titus, went through Crete, this should be interesting to you, that they didn't ordain elders at that time. They planted churches without elders. (laughs) They planted churches without elders. For a time, until Titus could go back through and could see where the spiritual levels and maturity of these men in these churches were so he could appoint these elders and he could raise them up because their job was to take what Titus had taught, who Paul had taught, and take those truths and continually reiterate them and give them back to the people. Point the people right to Jesus Christ. And godly men were needed in order to do that. So when we get to verse 10, for there are many who are insubordinate. Now we know why. We know what's going on. The four, there are many insubordinates. Here's why Titus was urged to go back and put what remained in order and to appoint elders in every town. Because there's rascals. There's villains. There's connivers. There's people who want to come into the church and they want to sow all manner of damage. They want to bring in destructive heresies. Now, they might believe those heresies hook, line, and sinker, and oftentimes false teachers do believe those things. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they're bald-faced liars and are just trying to um, make merchandise of the people of God. But oftentimes there are people who just simply believe a false truth and they're going to be insubordinate to the truth. They're going to reject the truth. They're going to try to undermine the leadership that exists that Paul had appointed, that Titus had appointed, and that, frankly, God had appointed for the ministry there in Crete. So there are many who are insubordinate. Now, church leadership is a touchy thing. You are all here on a volunteer basis. Now, my kids might say otherwise, <laughs> but you are all here for, on a volunteer basis, right? 
This isn't a job. You're not employed to be here. You come here because you believe that you can worship here with a clear conscience, that you're going to hear the word of God rightly taught. We're going to see the truths contained in Scripture, and we're going to try to follow those out to the best of our ability. That's why you're here. So for a leader within the church, it is a little tricky, a little difficult to pronounce authority or presume to have authority over. It was different just a hundred years ago. Carl Truman has famously said that church discipline ended with the advent of the automobile or the invention of the automobile. Because let's be honest, you know, you could right now, if you don't like something I'm saying, hop in your car and there's, you know, three, four dozen other churches in town that you could go sit in if you just don't like what I said or you don't like something that I'm doing or I gave you a hard word and you particularly didn't appreciate that hard word I gave. Who are you to try to presume to tell me something? Oh, you're the pastor, are you? Who ordained you? You can imagine. I've heard those kind of things before. You can imagine those kind of things. But there is a spiritual authority, and I have a spiritual responsibility. And when someone is getting squirrely, I use that as a kind euphemism for sinning. (laughs) When somebody is getting squirrely, when somebody is beginning to go down the road of sin, and it looks like potentially long down the road there could be real destruction coming... I have a responsibility before God and frankly a responsibility to you as a congregation to go and to confront that error, whether it be doctrinal error or whether it be some action that somebody is doing that is sinful. I have a responsibility to do that. Therefore, this is where my leadership comes from. Keeping the church as holy and as pure as I can to present you to Christ one day because I'm accountable for this congregation. Not accountable to people who listen to me on the internet. Not accountable to people who are in some faraway place who maybe come across one of my sermons. Sovereign Joy Christian Fellowship and the members here, I am accountable for. And I am accountable to. If I ever get squirrely, it behooves you to confront me. And if I'm really in sin, you've got to fire me. You have to get rid of me. You have to remove me from my position of authority and leadership. That's the way authority, that's the way leadership works. So there are people who come in and they are insubordinate. Meaning that when authority is rightly and appropriately served out, they reject it. They scoff against it. They push back against it. And this isn't a pushback like we're just having a back and forth dialogue and you maybe don't agree with something that I'm saying. It's real legitimate insubordination and a desire to undermine the work that the Lord would be doing through me. Also, these insubordinate folk are empty talkers and deceivers. You, You know an empty talker when you hear one. Words ad nauseum. And you kind of scratch your head and wonder, okay, I don't remember where we started from, and I have no idea where we're going. I'm not even sure what I'm hearing right now in the middle. 
at just talking for talking's sake. And a lot of times, people who are these empty talkers will use a lot of Christian verbiage, a lot of spiritual lingo. And they'll, they'll sound like, because they're running at the mouth and saying all manner of things, that they're talking spiritual truths. But in reality... They're just saying things over and over and over again, and there might be a little bit of error and a little bit of heresy in there. That happens a lot of times. And then there's outright deceivers, people who want to sow destruction and bring about deception. And you've heard me tell this story before of that fellow in Bible college who he, my very first semester was going around and he told people, you know, God told me this, God told me that, God told me this, God told me that. Until one point he told somebody, God told me you're supposed to give me your car. And then the leadership in the Bible college got wind of that and he was booted out. Well, he was a deceiver, a clear cut deceiver. He was working the people within the Bible college and he was working them so he could gain from it. He was bringing deception and acting deceptive in order to gain financially and gain materially. But he adds here, especially those of the circumcision party. Now, I'm going to be perfectly honest. I've taught Titus before, and I either forgot or didn't realize or didn't see it before that Crete had a massive Jewish population. Huge, almost half of the population of Crete in Paul's day were probably Jews. That's a large portion of people, especially on a small little island. Now, interestingly enough, some of it, we have that quote here Cretans are liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, and Epimenides is the one who said this, but he actually said this before Christ was born. Paul's writing after Christ here, but Paul's testimony says that it's true that Cretans are like this. And the Jews who lived on Crete fell into this category as well, interestingly enough. That they too had a reputation for being some of the absolute worst Jews that were there. It's odd to say that. I feel a little uncomfortable saying the worst Jews that were there. But the truth of the matter is, the world had influenced them in such a way and they were insulated on this little island that they, become like the, they became like the world around them. And we shouldn't be surprised because one of the reasons why God gave the law the way he did there in Leviticus and Deuteronomy was to keep his people separate from the world. He was giving us his law so that he could show us his own holy standard and what is required by God. But secondarily, it was to keep them distinct from the world around them because the world was carnal. We see it with Lot there in the book of Genesis as he and Abraham had their tension amongst themselves and their herds were too great to dwell together and Abram gave Lot permission to go wherever he wanted and Lot looked down on the green lands of Sodom and Gomorrah and chose to go dwell down there rather than on and in the foothills like Abraham was left to do. But what happened to Lot is he didn't just get down there and everything was hunky-dory. He drew closer and closer and closer to the world until he was actually, rather than living in tents out with his 
sheep and his herds. He was living in the town and became somebody of some reputation there in Sodom and Gomorrah in the towns that were so wicked God had to come and had to destroy them. The world's influence (coughs) is great. Our flesh wants to go there. You could probably feel it. There are certain things in life that I guarantee that you feel a draw to, that you feel attracted to, that are very, very worldly, and you know are opposed and antithetical to the things of Christ. Also, there are things that are kind of subtle, that might be a little bit going down that road. Little white lies, maybe, you know, or little picadillo here, a little thing there, and, you know... Song of Solomon talks about it this way. It's the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vineyard. So while sin can be big and major, a lot of times the way this happens, the way people become worldly is through little foxes, little sins, a little compromise here, a subtle little give in here. And before you know it, you're three, four, five, ten years down the road and you look back and go, how did I get into this place? It's wise for believers, it's wise for Christians to truly guard our lives with the Word of God. And when it says and teaches us ways to live, it behooves us to follow those ways and to follow them diligently, follow them clearly, follow them accurately. I mean, we should be grateful for good and godly leaders who lead us and guide us in the way that we should go because this kind of thing happens to all kinds of people. This kind of thing can happen to those who would profess faith in Christ and maybe look really good doing it and maybe genuinely are Christians. I think of Peter. He was for sure a believer and yet he goes not only denies the Lord, but even after the Lord had restored him, he has that incident that Paul brings up in Galatians where he's following after the ways of the circumcision party as well. Listen to what Paul says here. They must be silenced. This is the pastor's job. Back in verse 9, he says, He, the elder, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Okay? So I'm to hold firm the word of God. And that doesn't mean just hold it tight in my hand, of course. You understand that. That means I must believe the truths that are contained in here. And I must believe them in a way that is trustworthy in my own life. I trust this with my life. And so I try to, as best I can, model my life after what I find in here. So that the reason why this is vital is that I can give instruction and I can rebuke those who contradict it. So there's two things here. One, I need head knowledge because I have to give instruction. And two, I need lifestyle ability, I guess, and so that I can have authority when I have to rebuke those who contradict it. I need to be, like he said here earlier on in the book in verse 6, I need to be above reproach. 
We need to be people who have intellectual knowledge, but also our lives are ones where I am not living in sin because I have to silence these villains who are trying to come into the church and upset whole families, gaining shameful gain for themselves and teaching things they ought not to teach. Now, the, they must be silenced here is an aggressive word. I looked this up here, and it's, you know I don't know Greek, so I had to go rely on other people who do. But the word is literally muzzle, to gag. Aggressively, like I'm to take hold of and muzzle something. Like my dog, when he's getting aggressive. Gag, put something in their mouth to shut them up. Another way that this word has been used is to shove a bridle in their mouth so that you can steer them in the right way that they should go. You see, all of those are very vigorous and in some cases kind of violent actions. Listen, if there's somebody coming into this church and they start preaching and teaching and saying things that are contrary to the word of God. They start coming in here and they start acting certain ways that are not fitting for a Christian to act. You better believe that I'm going to silence that. I look back in the ministry over the years here at Sovereign Joy and there's been a couple of occasions where we've had rascals like this come in. And I look back and, you know, I I had tried to be gracious and tried to be understanding. And in reality, there is a point where I probably should have acted instead of, you know, saying, well, let's just see how this plays out. Because I was maybe a little too young and knowing what was going on and maybe a little too desiring to just extend grace. There's a time and a point where action has to be taken. That's not all the time. (laughs) I'm not, you know, this isn't, uh, somebody's called it a sin sniffer, right? I'm, who's sinning today, you know? And I know you're all sinning in some ways, but I'm going to sniff it out and I'm going to crush it down, right? You know pastors like that, that are just on you and their thumbs on you. And I remember the guy in Wisconsin and he was all up in your life with everything and you couldn't shop at this one grocery store and he needed to approve who you dated and what car you needed to go buy. I mean, just all the kinds of things. This is nothing like that. This isn't, oh, you said one wrong thing in a Bible study or one wrong thing in a text and, oh, you're going to get it. This is those who are coming into the church and listen what they're attempting to do. By their teaching gain shamefully and they ought not to be teaching the things they are that's the kind of person that we need to aggressively deal with and i as the pastor need to aggressively deal with these people must be silenced now we're small little church If we have somebody new coming in, it wouldn't take very long for us to realize if there was some real weirdness going on in that person's life or not. We've experienced it. The larger a church gets, the bigger it becomes, the more the pastor needs to be very in tune with the congregation and what's going on and who they're listening to and where they're getting their influences from. Because there are people like this out there. I want to think the best of people. Everybody who comes in here and 
I really want to think the best of them. I really want to think, all right, great, you know, another new person who's going to come in. And that's just not always true. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. You've you got to love the sense of humor of this. <laughs> this testimony is true, Paul says. <clears throat> always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Now, that just sounds like a classic overstatement, right? How can they always be liars? You have to tell the truth at one point or another, or else you can't buy a goat. Sail a ship, cook some wheat, whatever it is, right? You, but they have this reputation of just simply being untrustworthy. Evil beasts, that means that they are following their base desires, right? Whether it's out of hunger or sexually or whatever it is, that just if they get an urge, they just do it. That's the idea here. They're liars. If they get an urge that they perform it, and they're absolutely lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. Now, I understand this. Rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. Because we understand that this is not, this is uh, every single thing he says here in this sentence is opposed to scripture, is opposed to the word of God, is opposed to the character of those who follow Christ. The ninth commandment is thou shalt not bear false witness. So the very first thing, Christians are always liars. They're always violating the ninth commandment, he might as well say. And we are not to be people who are liars. We're to be people of the truth. We're to be people who, when our word is spoken, that it is believed and it's understood that this is the truth of what's being said. My wife will point out famously that I am an exaggerator. And so there are times where I need to realize, oh, this is not just some thing I'm telling or something or I'm not, you know, but I need to rein it in and realize that if I say this in an exaggerated way, people will take it this way and perceive it as a lie down the road. So I know that about me, so I need to be aware of my own heart, my own life in this and, and pray for these things. And these people, though, are always liars. This is a deliberate, intentional um, action where they're trying to actively deceive you. And you know people like that. You, everybody knows people like that who are just these pathological liars. And we know people who are these people who follow base desires. And that's not what we're to do. The Bible says in the book of Galatians that the fruit of the Spirit, the very last one there, is self-control. And that's exactly what's contrary to this phrase here being evil beasts. Being a self-controlled individual. That I can control my passions and my desires because I'm desiring to live for God's glory and not my own gratification. And then lazy gluttons. Being a Christian is hard work. It's, it's deliberate. We have to be active in our thoughts and active in our actions that we perform. If we are not, our default is going to default into worldliness and sin. And so, for as a, so far as a Christian, 
is concerned, we need to be those who are actively and aggressively pursuing holiness and pursuing righteousness. So you see here, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in their faith. That's what he's getting at here. Rebuke them when they act like this and give them positive ways to act and respond in response to their negative proclivities. Not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. We've looked at the Jewish error over and over and over again, and we understand it hopefully well at this point. In fact, we understand it well enough that I'm not even going to just continue to go on there. Let's go on to verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and the unbelieving, nothing is pure. I'm in in Matthew chapter 15 Jesus says hear and understand this it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person but what comes out of the mouth this defiles a person the disciples came to him and said did you know that the Pharisees are offended when they heard this and he answered Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you still without understanding? Don't you see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is then expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. This is what defiles the person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with one hot, unwashed hands does not defile anyone. <clears throat> to the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and the unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their mind and their consciences are defiled. To me, when somebody names the name of Christ in some way, shape, or form, maybe nominally, maybe they even look good on some level, this is one of the areas where it quickly becomes evident what's really going on inside them. That suddenly things that are pure and innocent, there's a hint of innuendo behind him. There's a looking at things in a way that shouldn't be looked at. There's looking and thinking things are, you know, more sinful or sinful when they actually aren't. You know people like this, and you know what? I've been a person like this. We probably all have in one way, shape, or form. And you know what? Honestly, as we still live in these fallen bodies, there's a propensity for us to fall into this. 
But I mean, what he's talking about here is those who are reading their Bibles and those who are seriously following after the Lord, they see pure things in every way. They think good thoughts. And it's those people who, you know, when something happens and all of a sudden there's this comment that's made and it could be of a crass and harsh nature, you realize, oh, there's, their heart really isn't where their profession is. Their mind really isn't where their profession is. They're professing Christ out of one side of their mouth, and yet they're living in a way that shows and reveals that they're sinners. Their conscience and their minds are defiled. What are these things? They're murder. Jesus has qualified that in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, you hate somebody in your heart, then you've committed murder against them. Adultery and sexual immorality. Oftentimes, this is where the area where it comes out is there's something innocent seemingly that happens and people read into it some kind of sexual innuendo. Or theft, coveting what somebody else has. The thought is, ooh, I want that and what can I do to get that? And bearing false witness and slander, lying and slandering to get a better opinion thought of of themselves. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. For me, when you've heard the controversy from James 2, I'm sure. Because in James 2, James says that basically faith without works is dead. Yet Paul says we're justified by faith alone apart from works. So there's this tension and this controversy between contradiction between Paul and James. And I don't think that's what's going on at all. He, James says in verse 18, some of you will say, you have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? Woohoo! You do well. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. Do you want to be shown, oh foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not our father Abraham justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him righteousness, accounted to him as righteousness. He was called a friend of God. So you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And this is what Paul's talking about here. They profess to know God but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. So Paul has no contradiction or no tension with James here. They're talking about two different things. Our justification in terms of our salvation, our redemption, is clearly by faith alone. That's all throughout Scripture. What we're talking about here is my justification before you as a believer. The justification of my profession of faith. You will know that by my works. And I can look at your life and I can, and I'm given the right here to judge your profession of faith by your works. 
So it will not do to say, no one can judge me but God. In fact, here he's saying, one of the responsibilities of the pastor is to look at people's works. I need to be able to discern if this is a person that I need to preach the gospel to so that they can be redeemed, or I need to preach the gospel to because they're struggling and they need that confirmation of the grace that they've already received. You see? Both answers the gospel no matter what. That's the good news. That's the right thing. But here I am to look at somebody's works and rightly so look at mine and see here do the works deny the profession of faith that is made. Here he says that they profess to know God. These people who are coming into the church and invading and bringing false teaching, they profess to know the true and living God. They're trying to come rightly in the name of the Lord, but their works prove that they don't really believe at all. And therefore, they are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. So, to conclude here this evening, we look at this text and we see that we have a good and right, and I think at least at this point in our history as a church, a healthy foundation on which we're building. That we have a good place from which to move forward. That in the context of our church right now, that we don't have this type of person here in our midst. But that doesn't mean we can relax and be off of our guard, as in the common phraseology, take our foot off the gas pedal or something like that. Because there's a very real sense in which as we go from here, there could be people who, well, there will be people who come in. But we need to be wise and we need to be discerning about what kind of influences we let in our minds, in our hearts, and in the doors of this church. It won't do any any of us any good to bring in deceptive heresies and rank lies. In fact, it's something that we need to, and I need to, especially as the pastor, be aggressive in terms of rooting it out and silencing it. So the good news is, is that we do have this in place. And the bad news is, is that we can know that the errors are going to come. And it's for us to be wise and be discerning as they do come, that we're ready to meet it head on with the truth of God's word. Lord, We trust that you have led us and guided us to this point in our lives as a church in faithfulness to your name and your glory. Because we desire, Lord, to bring honor and glory to you. And so as we think about these things and think about these truths, we're grateful that you've given us a place from which to move forward in truth, in honor, in dignity, in purity. And Lord, we ask and pray that you would keep this evil stuff from us, but we know that it will come. And Lord, when it does come, we pray that we would be ready to meet it head on. Meet it with your truth and see that error silenced and you given the glory and honor that you deserve in your church. Father, we love you and we thank you for the grace that we have. May we reflect that grace and may we reflect your goodness in the way that we deal with each other, the way that we live our lives, 
and the way that we honor you, Lord Jesus. In your name, amen.